Hi and welcome to another episode of Fix Pleasant. This episode we're going to talk about The Changeover by Margaret Mahi, which has just been made into a film, although none of us have seen it yet, but future film night. And I'm joined by Liz. Hello. And also a good friend, um, previously mentioned many times in this podcast as a co-GM and author, Rhiannon Lasseter. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming on, Rhiannon. It's great to have you here. Lovely. I've and really enjoyed listening to it, so it's nice to be doing the talking. Awesome. Awesome. Well, the changeover is, I think it's, you've both actually got the identical editions <laughs> as well, I'm, I'm seeing on the table. Um, the changeover is a, uh, is it fair to say that it's kind of quite important to both of you and you've read, you read it, so both read it several times, is that right? Several is an understatement in my case. Excellent. When did, so first first question then, uh, before we go into the book itself, when did you first read it, Liz? I have no idea, but my name in the front cover of Rhiannon's edition, which was my cast-off edition when I got a slightly less battered one, um, calls me Lizzie, which dates it to age 14 at the latest. <laughs> so I think I probably read it first when I was about 12. Okay. And so, and so, Reed, did you read Liz's copy first, or did you had you read it before? No, I had my own copy, and I, in fact, my copy may have originally been my mother's copy. I read it at a similar age, around about twelve or thirteen. My mother had a lot of Margaret Mahi books, and this was one of my favourites, and it really clicked with me. And I had an edition around for a long time and then it disappeared um someone borrowed it or i lost it mm. and mm. that's how come i needed um to take liz's spare though it's terribly fully a party so i think i might have to buy another one and we've just mm. discovered that it's not currently in print although presumably the new film will change that yeah undoubtedly i was, I was looking around for a kindle version and it's not available but um, I think it's going to be interesting when we come to the theme section to talk about the age at which you read it. And I think that's an interesting thing about maybe a lot of YA fiction. Mm. I read this as an adult. Yeah. Um, so I have a particular perspective on it. Enjoyed it hugely. Um, but it was not like a formative thing. That, um, a, a, it was not a formative text of my youth. So shall we go into the um, into the episode then? The normal format is... First of all, we'll do a synopsis, and then we're going to talk about some themes that come out, and then we're going to talk about games. So, Liz, are you going to do the synopsis? I am, yep. Excellent. Okay, so The Changeover is um, by New Zealand author Margaret Mahi. Um, the protagonist is Laura Chant, who um, collects names of people which are... Um, the opposite to the person and has begun with herself because she, her name is Chant but she cannot sing um, and her other primary characteristic when you first meet her is her woolly hair, self-described and actually I was wondering while you were talking just now if part of the reason that this book chimed for both me and Vianna is that our hair both tends towards the woolly at times <laughs> um, although I didn't think of that until just now so she's um, I guess around 15 or 16 um, she has a younger brother and a mother who is um, kind of lovable but scatty and disorganised um, and an absent father and has a more or less happy life that kind of chugs along quite cheerfully uh, until something terribly bad happens to her younger brother. Um, he suddenly becomes very, very ill and gets very much worse. She knows, although no one else knows or believes her, that the illness is a, as a result of a curse that has been put on him by an evil creature who's sucking his energy to um, maintain its own. 
Um, and in despair, in an attempt to try and save him, she goes to see a boy at school who she knows in ways that she can't quite describe is a witch. Um, she visits him and his mother and his grandmother, um, knowing that they're witches and basically knocks on their door and says, right, I know you're witches. I need you to help me save my brother. Um, and it turns out they are witches and they do help her save her brother by working what they call a changeover, which changes her from being not a witch to being a witch. And that's sort of the central part of the book, the, the working of the changeover, um, the magic ritual that um, turns Laura into a witch and gives her the power to be able to save her younger brother. Um, along the way, of course, she falls in love with the boy and they, um, they develop an ongoing relationship, which, um, we see again in the epilogue. And I think the epilogue is one of my favourite bits in some ways, that um, having had this fairly simple standard um, quest plot going along, at the end we have um, some more scenes of sort of comfortable, happy everyday life with Jacko, the younger brother, playing with his um, his toy farm on the floor and Laura and her boyfriend Sorensen um, turning the elements of the toy farm into living creatures for a short period of time and the the tigers um, run around and eat the crocodiles or um, something like that I don't remember precisely which animals but they're definitely tigers <laughs> pink crocodiles pink crocodiles yes of course Jacko has a toy crocodile which yes. is pink called Rosebud mm. yes I'd forgotten about Rosebud um, so we have this lovely little um, domestic scene at the end of Laura and her boyfriend who um, are still together and are making plans for the future and Jacko is fully recovered and perfectly happy um, which giving the synopsis that way it sounds much more simple and straightforward than it kind of feels in my head or than it felt at the time but something about the um, the relationship between Laura and Sorensen really chimed with me and I, I like her as a, a protagonist very much and I like him he's one of those kind of great fictional boyfriends isn't he certainly in my life and i suspect in yours also yeah definitely i think that's part of the story yeah well in thinking about this book one of the things i was thinking is that the narrative itself is follows quite a linear path um Laura's younger brother is the victim of this magical attack laura for, because of her sensitivity to things that are magical and her love for her brother has a uh, an, an antagonist and needs to find allies and to and to rescue Jacko from this attack and the events of the plot how Jacko's illness progresses where Laura goes to for help the nature of that help once received all of that is quite linear and I would say quite inevitable in the narrative yeah. those things must happen but I think the narrative is about thematically is about change and about awakening and about becoming a grown-up yeah. and there's a very strong theme of sexual discovery that Laura's relationship with Sorensen um, who calls himself sorry is it's quite complex compared to the average teen mm. romance and Laura is beginning to feel uh, the growing of a sort of sexual power and that this older boy, she knows he's interested in her before he's ever really properly introduced. They sort of recognised something in each other and she's noticed him noticing her. 
and she's not quite ready at the beginning of the book to kind of see her her body as sexual or to see herself as a kind she's half a child half an adult Mm. and during the course of the narrative she's forced to grow up partly because of what happens to her brother and her concern for him partly because the family as a whole is shifting her mum has acquired a new boyfriend the parents are separated and the mum acquires a new boyfriend at the beginning of the novel so that's already altering the family dynamic Mm. and Laura herself is growing up and the changing over the things that happen to Laura are not just about changing magically they're about sex and also romance and the intersection of sex and romance yeah. One of the things I was thinking, sort of skimming through in preparation, was it's also about her uncertainty as a... This this transition from childhood to, to adulthood is also about finding a place in the world. And I wonder if that's also part of it, along with the... Obviously, the sexual awakening is a big part of that, but becoming more certain, because I do feel at the end, when she deals with the problem, she deals with it in a, a as a well with a very purposefully and with newfound confidence as a result of the changeover is that fair yeah i think so i think there's an element of her claiming her own power and taking control of it but also claiming her place in the world because the the cozy domestic scenes we get at the beginning are about to be shattered by the new boyfriend by what happens with jacko and by um, laura's boyfriend as well so all of those all of the ways that it changes forces her to go and do something different with herself with her life with her own interactions with all of those things Mm. i want to pick up on something that you just said which is the the fact that um this was a sort of a stable place and then suddenly it was um several things happen in very quick succession which turn everything over and force the characters into or the protagonist into a force of action Mm. so you mentioned one thing which was um the new boyfriend that's one thing but also the the illness yeah uh, of um or the curse so is there more to be said about that given that what we're also talking about is the narrative structure and then how we can use that in a game sorry is there more to be said about what about the way that it all changes well no sudden changes Mm. Well, it's a fairly standard trope in fiction of all kinds, um, games and books and and films and everything, that you start off from a a stable place and something happens to change everything and we see how the characters deal with that. Um, I think it takes advantage, excuse me, it takes advantage in a way of the fact that the adults never really believe in the supernatural thing. Mm. Laura's got a great relationship with her mother and she tries to tell her mother on a couple of occasions, she says, I've had a warning, something bad is going to happen. And then she says, it's Jacko's sick because this creepy old man stamped him on his hand and now he's sucking his life in some way. She she feels that this is true. Mm. And she tries to tell her mother and her mother can't quite believe it. And I think that adds to Laura feeling I have to take responsibility for this myself I have to find my own magical solution and of course the adults in YA YA fantasy very rarely Mm. believe in the magic this may actually be one of the reasons that Changeover was such an important book for me because Kate, Laura's mother she doesn't believe her but she she 
respects her even for having the warnings she doesn't completely dismiss them out of hand she doesn't say oh silly girl go away you're talking rubbish she says well I, I believe that you believe it and I see that you're doing the best you can for what you think is happening but today isn't today for warnings I don't have time for warnings I'm too busy today yeah not on a Thursday you yeah. can't have a warning on a Thursday yeah but she's not like that typical YA parent who just thinks the child is making it up she believes that Laura believes and she believes that it's serious and important to Laura and she does the best she can within that context well she's not perfect she has no, to adjust um, on one occasion she wants to go out with a new boyfriend and Laura kind of gives her grief about this and then Kate decides she won't go out with the new boyfriend and that, I think that's quite an interesting coming full circle in the plot in that quite near the beginning the new boyfriend is introduced and Kate says um, come to tea we're having um, fish, fish and, and chips. chips and Laura's quite miffed you know yeah. fish, fish and, and chips, chips is our special night, night. Um, and then near the end of the book Laura says to sorry um, who's certainly filling the role of boyfriend in her life by then um, come on Friday we'll you know come to tea for, with F and C with fish and chips yeah. and her mum says that was a bit cheeky Laura It's that's our family night yeah. and the new boyfriend says come on Kate why do you think she wanted him to come it's the new boyfriend yeah. oh and in fact Laura says Chris comes you know it's a statement about how their family has moved on it's had to encompass Chris and it's now got to encompass sorry yeah and so I think for Kate, her relationships with Laura have to do with having to adjust to the fact that Laura is growing up. And we briefly encounter Laura's dad, who still thinks of her very much as a little mm, girl. He calls her bar his, lamb. Yeah, his woolly lamb, his bar lamb. I think that the what you just said is, is very interesting if we're bringing it around to role-playing games, which obviously this is part of it. It's the way that the narrative puts pressure on the character to act and contains that it restricts them in certain ways they can't appeal to authority so they're forced to do things themselves but they do actually have a a path that they can take and they can see and i think that's that's kind of important both for both for books that you can have a protagonist who can with agency and for characters in a role-playing game yeah. i reckon i think that's quite an interesting thing about paths because something we haven't really touched on is that sorry carlisle who we first encounter seeming to be quite wealthy quite self-confident an older character is actually an abuse victim mm. that because of a, a set of circumstances that has happened in his youth his biological mother actually gave him up for adoption and his um adopt or foster parents were very cruel to him and um, treated him extremely badly and to sorry one of the things that he's thinking about is the danger of becoming bad could he be villainous and there is a link between that and Carmody Brach the evil character yeah. that um, obviously he's gone very far down a very negative path but certainly sorry sees in the magic and in the danger of the magic that potential and a lot of the characters this going back to this idea of parenting have made some quite have made some inadvisable decisions in the cause of the magic I think that's fair to say Sorensen's backstory which is when we go on to games I might mention a bit more 
involves the fact that he was conceived to be the youngest child in a classic witch triangle Mm -hmm. that his grandmother would be the crone and his mother would be the mother and he would be the maiden and he was conceived for this purpose and then he came out a boy and he is as it turns out he could have served this magical role because he is in fact a male witch which is quite unusual but at the time they looked at this child and thought that's not what we wanted wrong gender and um and had him adopted out very unsuccessfully with trauma that he still has to this day an occasional stutter for example yeah is there anything we can say about carmody bruck because uh, brilliant name also <laughs> also got absolutely I, I like the pun with the name of his shop as well which is just brilliant dicker bruck yes but he's um well, it's worth mentioning his shop for a start because his shop is one of the classic magic shops. Yeah, yeah. That appears, does something in the plot, and then disappears. And it doesn't disappear in quite the way that the magic shop usually does. I mean, the building is physically still there, it's just closed forevermore. And in fact, they go and encounter him in his friendly little suburban house yes, where he has a sign on the door saying Jolly Days. And there he is just pretending, he's all flat, fat and plump and happy and pretending to Having be an ordinary person. Jack and his energy. Yeah. And he's pruning his roses or something, isn't he? Mm. Something like that. And he's very contemptuous about Sorensen. He says, oh, I see. Um, yes, you're on the right lines, love. But um, this isn't go- going to help. Um, though it's interesting to see a male witch. You don't see a lot of those. Yes. And it is, in fact, the fact that she has changed over that enables her to defeat him. It's not purely that she is now a witch. It's not that she now has power so she can use the powers to defeat him. It's that she didn't previously have powers, so he doesn't expect her to have them. The plot relies on that element of surprise that because he's seen her before and knows that she's, yes. as it were, harmless, she has a window of opportunity. Mm-hmm. But he has to invite her in. That's. I think it's quite interesting that the magical aspect of the book, which we encounter in a very domestic setting a lot of the time, it's it's never really explained the rituals or how the magic works. There are rules to it. There's a moment where... Laura's told you've eaten our bread and salt, therefore you have to return to our house. And there's this aspect of Jacko inviting the old man in yeah. and the old and him in turn inviting Laura in. But none of these things are really explained. There's no sort of D and D manual <laughs> aspect to it. As you occasionally get in a in a more modern YA fantasy narrative that would um have more of a encyclopedic aspect Mm. to how the magic works something else i want to talk about quickly about the book before we move on to games which is the geography and we you just mentioned re um carmody brack's jolly day's house Um, but i think there are all kinds of other interesting things about the geography um some of which sort of color some of my walking around um urban streets at the time i read it and occasionally since so um, Laura lives in a new subdivision, uh, that is, and that's the word she uses, um, that's been built up fairly recently. It's got new streets that feel kind of raw and a bit threatening. And kind of in the heart of this subdivision is the shopping centre where, um, where the fish and chips are bought and where Kate works in a bookshop. But we get quite a bit of walking through the streets of this this shiny new, um, somewhat scary residential area. And then somewhere in these streets is the house that was previously the... It was a farmhouse, wasn't it? Mm. Of the 
the farm that previously occupied the land that the subdivision rests on. Um, and this is the Carlisle house where Sorensen lives, which has had the subdivision grow up around it, but is itself a very much older house um, and features a, a large front garden with a path that you have to walk down with topiary looming out of the the shadows and, and cats coming out of the, the shadows and, and passing you on the path. Um, so it's sitting as a, a throwback to a different era in the middle of this um, modern, I guess, 70s suburban landscape um, that Laura walks through to get from her house to Sorensen's house. And those passages have always seemed quite powerful to me that you described it a moment ago as a domestic story and it's domestic, but it's also domestic in the sense of the neighbourhood rather than just the home and the family. That leads on to a slightly interesting thing about her response to Sorensen because when she goes to visit him in his house he's dressed very differently from how yes, he's dressed the at school because at school obviously he's in school uniform but and in his house perfect, so he's wearing his authority as well it, is it a black velvet dressing gown and he's stroking a cat and, he ha- and he's wearing a lot of rings and, and he's, he's, he's clearly placed himself in the in the landscape of his home that has been um, i think he had um, explicitly admits at one point that part of the design of his dressing gown and his bedroom has been to place him as kind of an alluring figure, although he's never had the opportunity to try it out before. And he's addicted to romance novels, um, which is just... because he's trying to learn how to be human because of the previous trauma that he's experienced. And but when Laura encounters him in this space in which he's kind of strong and magical and sexy, he's also very awkward by yes. her entry into his space and her seeing his bedroom, which has some dodgy elements to it, including the fact he's got a full-size photograph of a naked woman and pinned to the <laughs> corner of it a slightly blurry picture of Laura herself, yes. which throws her rather as, so as it would. <laughs> He's expecting that they will at some point have a relationship, have recognised each other, but he's not expecting that that relationship will begin by her entering his lair and coming and demanding things of him in his own home without warning. And he definitely makes passes at her through the book, but they're not typical teen romance. Um, Mm. At one point, he just puts out his hand and puts it on her breast. And she's very, again... She's sort of, I think the line is Laura felt her face become incredulous. <laughs> and they sort of stand like that for a bit yes. until they're interrupted. I remember that. Okay. So, yeah, there's all kinds of weird and interesting stuff kind of winding around this simple narrative. Shall we move on to talking about games? Yeah, let's. Have you got something? That's the question. Yeah, I've sort of got something. Why don't you go first, given that restarted the uh, okay. themes? But... Um, so. I say sort of, and I mean sort of. Um, I'm thinking of a, a one-on-one game um, of a sort of um, a ritual for taking control um, where you begin in a darkened room as in the, the changeover itself, uh, the actual magic working, with some objects that you have chosen as being the the objects of power for your character, um, and they can be more or less mundane depending on depending on the character, um, and then from there work through the changeover itself, um, build a landscape out of the out of the objects that you've brought with you and the um, the ideas that your that your character is bringing with her into her 
new life, the things that she's bringing from her old life, the obstacles that she's seeking to overcome. And in the magical landscape of the change, of, which we haven't really talked about at all, and which maybe there was a good time to do because yeah, go ahead. So the changeover itself um, is worked in the Carlisle house in this this old magical house where the the three witches live, um, and Sorensen and his mother and his grandmother both play a part in it. His mother's called Miriam, and his grandmother's called Winter. Um, and some of the landscape that Laura moves through as part of the changeover is pure magical landscape. Some of it is drawn from the surroundings. Uh, so the changeover begins with her having a bath um, and it's a very magical sort of bath. Um, there are candles and scented oils and so on. Um, and that that is the beginning of her journey. Uh, but at some point while taking this magical journey, which is mostly a journey in her head, although it feels like a, Again, geography, it feels like... It's one of those dream landscape ones. Dinah and jones has a very similar one, and they tend to merge a bit in my head. (laughs) The travelling down a path with choices in a... I think they merge in my head with your book, Waking Dream. (laughs) Um, But the bit that particularly rings out for me as being very definitely the changeover is the bath mat. Mm. So there has been a bath mat in the bath state at the beginning. And then somewhat later in the journey, um, Laura realises that under her feet there are some letters and it turns out to be the letters of the words bath mat reversed, uh, which kind of links her back into uh, into some of her real world ideas. Um, and she meets Sorensen along this journey and um, he has a particular role to play. But there are all kinds of sort of fairly standard magical tropes in the journey that she takes to change over mixed in with some more mundane things and that I think is one of the one of the interesting things about the magic of the book and the thing that I would explore in my little one-on-one ritual game that we would we work a changeover um we start with a character who has an obstacle to overcome and some objects that she's brought with her and the GM would weave a landscape around her um, allow her to overcome these challenges and then come out at the end with new power and new resolution for how to how to overcome the challenges. So is this uh, would this be a sort of chamber LARP then? I think it's a two-player very mini chamber LARP, yeah. yeah. Well, what you've just said about certain people having, having um, roles to play, you, it sounds like you don't, you don't necessarily have to have just one GM. No, or indeed just one player, really, although that was how I originally thought of it. Well, I think one it has to be one player who's going through the change and then the people around them are helping them to do that, right? Yeah. But uh, I think it's a brilliant idea. We could have had her three GMs, the maiden mother and her crone. That would be cool. That sort of takes me off to some of the things I was thinking about games, actually. Oh, go on then. Yeah. So I was also thinking about the ritual. In fact... I think in some ways this is a difficult book to translate into game because yes. it's written very tightly with there isn't a large cast of characters and they all have a very definite role to play um, psychologically in the plot. But something that interested me is the idea of wanting to construct a ritual and missing a certain component. Mm. So you are, as it were, the the crone and the mother and I thought this could potentially be done with the crone and the mother as two GMs Mm. missing their final um, maiden or you could have all those people be characters because I was actually thinking of a rather larger cast and 
with the the need for this let's say small community to protect itself and this ritual or aimed to stop the city enveloping the house Mm. as in the book or to stop perhaps a greater danger but the community sort of broadly agrees on the need for the ritual but it hasn't quite got the right magical components and then I thought in the book Laura's not at all reluctant really to become magical as Mm. most teenage girls I think would agree (laughs) um it's not a big question. Do you want to become a witch and save your brother? Well, yeah, sure. And also hook up with this hot boy at the same time. <laughs> yeah, all of that is perfectly reasonable. I would like a bit more challenge actually in this. So if you have a cast of characters, any of whom has the potential to be the mm. third in the ritual, but isn't quite right to be that person. Yeah. So if you... One way I thought you could do it is we know that the third person in the ritual has to be a woman, Mm -hmm. has to be a witch. And I also said, I think it's implied that that person has to be a virgin and you certainly could write it that way. So if you have a group of people who you have a male witch (laughs) or you have a um, non-virgin woman, um, non-virgin teenager, and... Everyone in this group would need to change something about themselves, which is theoretically possible with a magical journey. Mm. So not just the, I mean, you could have someone who's not quite magical enough. Who, In fact, I can imagine that. Yes, sure. I'll be a witch. I'll be a witch. Well, hang on. Let's see. Is there another way we can fix it? Um, so someone could be very keen to do that and to play that role in the ritual. But I, I would like to have an aspect of, but you lose something as well. Yeah. So... Um, leaving your old self behind and becoming the new self would mean changing your dynamics with the other characters. So I was thinking of it as a group of people, all of whom had existing connections to each other, connections that would change as a result of one of them becoming the ritual component. So you start with a relationship map and then you redraw it afterwards and you're forced to break those bonds and write in new ones. And the course of the game is the characters discussing amongst themselves the implications of changing that. And also, I think quite interestingly for a role-playing party, they can go quite far in, well, hang on, does it have to be you two who are the mother and that what if that person had a baby (laughs) and then this person trying to find a way through it so that you have the right components for the ritual or changing the ritual. Mm. Maybe the conclusion is perhaps this whole ritual is a bad idea to begin with. Nice. That sounds brilliant. They're both great ideas. Do you have one? Um, so I don't really have a. I don't have a fully formed game. I did want to. Th- I, what I wanted to think about was um, Carmody Brack as the villain, mm. and essentially what happens when you have a villain in a role playing game who is effectively cannot be um, cannot be challenged at yeah. the start. So obviously, um, there, there's at the start, uh, the characters are put in this terrible position where they are hunted and tagged by a predator who then starts taking and taking, and there's pretty much nothing they can do about it until. Uh, so, so then the question is, how does that monster? Uh, because how does that monster present themselves in in the 
game because mostly they should be an ever-present threat. And But actually, Comedy Break doesn't appear that much. He's a problem right at the start. They learn some things about him, but then most of the book, as you've rightly said, is focused on a change, and it's the change that is is the bulk of the book, and then it's only right at the end that the monster is confronted. So it's kind of like this a questing loop of let, let's let's take a sort of a, a fantasy bent of you know that there is a dragon, the dragon can only be slain by a sword. So the whole thing about it is that, as you said earlier, Ree, the the thing at the end, you know that the hero is going to kill the dragon. What matters is the going away from the problem, finding the solution, then coming back. Yeah. And I think that the thing that I'm wondering is, this problem and this monster is always going to be in the minds of the characters, and they, it will always be an ever-present threat, and it should drive their every action. So how do you continue to put pressure on the characters to remember that actually the, the whole reason we're doing this is because we have a goal to we have a, an end goal and how do you make that end goal fit the powers and the change that the characters actually develop because one of the things i'm thinking of is if you have you have a a changing character in any role-playing game at that point it becomes quite could become quite freeform unless you have something very obvious they're going after like the magic sword of dragon slaying or whatever it is one of the things I think that, that's really evocative is the way that Jacko is marked yeah. at the start and then the mark just disappears. And you say, well, where's the mark gone? Which is kind of horrible because then it, it's... And there's a nice bit of description of the mark sinking under the layers of his skin, kind of attaching itself to his soul or something, isn't there? Where's it gone? If it hasn't rubbed off, has it just dissolved into him? Yes, mm. that was horrific. So um, what I'm thinking is you've got a very, uh, these visual cues of how characters are marked by a predator, which they then have to deal with, and using that kind of, uh, those kind of markers to remind the players that their characters are in some ways um, tainted and they have a problem and the problem is getting worse. I was in a game like that. You yeah. were in that game. You were both in that game. Alice, Alistair Horsby's Ravenloft game, very, very long time ago. Oh, yes. Our friend Rue played a character who touched something he shouldn't, and ever afterwards he had, like, creepy, weird <laughs> hand of... I don't remember Danger. And he, he also had... Um, that that particular character, as it, I mean, it was that was the classic. I've touched something I shouldn't, and I'm now tainted. It's also given me vast power, because I think one of the things about that character was he could blow things up. I can't remember exactly what he, he could, could do. manipulate the fabric of the universe. I yes, think with his creepy weird hand. That's <laughs> right, sort of, and and promptly shotgunned everyone in the back. I think is the, what usually. <laughs> well, happened. that's what you do if you get have that kind of power, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's sort of. Oh yes, no, no, no. I I have to throw up this throw off this terrible power because it's bad for myself. No, I'm going to just chunk shotgun everyone in the back and now I have ultimate power and so there is that that sort of thing so it's marking characters and making that threat ever present I think you could you could in fact do it with the the kind of ink stamp that is used in the book either um, stamp it on people's actual arms as be the GM wondering and just stamp bits of the band or stamp the character sheet Stamp the character sheet, that's a brilliant idea. Because that persists between sessions and 
gradually you're encroaching on parts of the character sheet and what if you stamp over a bit of something that actually means something (laughs) (laughs) oh crap the gm just stamped over my biggest pointiest power does that mean i can't use it anymore maybe it does that's quite interesting that is genius I'd be worried about stamping on people's arms because there's a kind of a consent issue. <laughs> yeah. But, but stamping Also on... clothing and allergies and washing it off again afterwards. Oh, you could do it as stickers and give people the option. No, you play... Stickers on the character sheet is nice as well. Stickers have worked extremely well. I think we've all well. played in games that do that too. Yeah, there was one very memorable one where, where we, had, we didn't know what powers we were going to bet, get and the GM... Um, and this was over a several days con. Um, the GM had all the powers on individual stickers. And when we got our powers, as our characters were awakening, having forgotten ourselves in the fantasy landscape, we were all remember we, we were all staff in a, in a stately home or something, and something weird was happening. We were translate, transported to other worlds to regain our knowledge. We chose our powers by picking the sticker that we liked and then yeah. sticking it on the character sheet. I think I played in the re- I think you two played in the original. It was Dawn's game, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. You two played in the original of it, and I think I played in the rerun. That's right. Well, I was in a game just this summer, which Andy ran, in which characters kept uh, fainting, having visions of a uh, a mythic past. And when you came back round from your faint, you discovered you had a new tattoo nice. and also a whole load of new powers. I, for example, had a tiger tattoo and a whole load of extra strength, and that came out completely well, randomly. <laughs> sure, it did. So, so this is this is not fainting in inverted commas, like fainting after uh, after a couple of bottles of wine. No, this is a, it was a very magical faint. Okay, well, that's so how the nice. characters questioned it was a bit more um, mundane. How did I get this tattoo? Yeah. Brilliant. But yeah, so, marks. I think on characters and potentially on players, and certainly on character sheets. It's definitely yeah, and that's more interesting. To going that. back to the sort of the consent idea, that's an interesting thing about the GM intruding on the player's space, which yeah. is kind of. It's kind of not done. The GM doesn't tend to take the player's character sheet and then write on the character sheet. And they do that. They, do. Well, they definitely do that, but breaching the physical boundary mm. between the GM and the player. But even the character sheet, it's done in some games, but in plenty of others, once you've once you've written your character sheet, it's your property. Well, that, the GMs well, that, don't change. Well, that's that's my point. I think it's it's in a lot of games. I think it's it's the thing in front of the player. It's their territory. It's the thing they have control over. So the GM coming along and marking it with a random mark that might actually rub out some of the bits that's but i've been in lots of games where at the end of the session or during the session the gm says oh hand in your character sheets i'm going to change something Mm. and you anticipate that because you're going to get a power up hopefully or (laughs) and i've run games where i've taken in character sheets and made changes to them or given you a completely new character sheet i guess i'm thinking more more of the act of going over and just stamping it that is problematic, and it's it's like the, the it's like saying you do that to a newspaper. Someone say, "What? Well, I was reading that. <laughs> What's up with that?" I think, though, if you were going to have a game very much about as let's call them dark marks, then <laughs> that could be indicated by a character sheet that was sort of decorated but with spaces that could Mm. fill and flow and change and in the same way that you might expect in storyteller potentially to gain an extra dot of something that in this game it would be visually indicated that there would be this is a graphic design job (laughs) 
spaces to be filled. I don't say spaces mm. to be filled, but what happens if you go outside the lines? That, that's the most important. <laughs> if you put your stamp down, and let's say you've got a, a block of skills which are organised alphabetically rather than in terms of... Let's take the storyteller system. Those skills are organised arbitrarily in three different pillars and then alphabetically, so they don't actually... Ha- a lot of the skills don't have anything relation to the, the adjacent skills. So you just stamp somewhere randomly and you say, actually... So ev- ev- any any one of the all the skills that are touched by this mark, they now have a penalty. So, yeah. well, what does that mean? That's like sort of the shotgun effect. To how does your curse work? A lot of different things could happen. Oh, there are so many exciting ways in which you could do the acquisition of a mark. So, for example, you could have a shape of a body, and you could choose a, as it were pin or or dart which could be different colors or different kinds but you could be blindfolded and then pin the tail and the donkey style be, <laughs> have to I, place this mark on the on the I think body the game that had a character sheet that was basically um draw the shape of a body and then annotate it i don't remember which game it was i think it might have been a con game of some kind but well, the, what this calls to mind is the, the importance of the stuff at the table when you're playing and and how much it can add to the game yeah so, uh, together with the idea of a person physically bringing the objects into the chamber LARP and then playing around those objects is, is also a good example. Well, a lot of it has to do with safety. I wouldn't want to be in the kind of game that Liz described without having a pretty close relationship with that GM. That's a yeah. game that's a lot, almost like a tarot reading. Yeah. It's that's taking... the sort of thing I was thinking with it. And then... Not a game you'd run with strangers. In any game, mm. the GM kind of defines the bounds of the player space, whether by saying you can or you can't write on your character sheet or mm. what bit of the character sheet you can write on. Um, and there's sort of the paraphernalia that's at the table and how they introduce perhaps frightening and radical things in a way that makes you as a player feel safe even if your character yeah. doesn't. Mm. Well then, three ideas. We've gone a f- fair way away from the original book here. <laughs> we always do. Which is, which is, you know, I think that's a good discussion then. Um, okay, so I think then we've talked about role-playing games, so let's wrap up. Is there anything you'd like to say about, uh, some last words about the changeover, Liz? I'll ask you first. Uh, no, I don't think there are. Okay. I think we've said most of the things I wanted to say. Excellent, thank you. Ree? I think I'd say we haven't really talked a lot about the quality of the the dialogue between the characters and I think that's something that the reader will really enjoy it's quite witty it's quite human it's quite real it's full of quite shallow things that go a lot deeper Mm. everything has been given a lot of thought to in this book and Mahi has other work which um I also like tech going further into the landscape of imaginative experience, but she's so good on family. Mm. It's it's mm. influenced my own writing because it's an area that I like to work in, but families and their relationships and the changing nature of those relationships is at the yeah. heart of what this book is about. Yes, I think you... I, I read... Al, is it the Alchemy or The Alchemist? I can't remember which one. She's definitely got one called Alchemy. Yeah, that was also very interesting, and it's about sort of the magical self and... Uh, and but with very mundane community focused stuff the book i love 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 is the tricksters it's so clever and it's so interesting in terms of the family dynamics and 
the true magical realism of it. I don't think I... I think I've only read one other thing of hers, and I don't know what it was, but it was disappointing, and it's maybe not want to read anything else of hers because I love the changeover so much that I kind of don't want to be disappointed again. So maybe I should read The Tricksters. I've got a big stack of Mahi. She's got some have. other I've really good ones. I know you have to some of them at various points and never quite done it. Well, read The Changeover and read the others as well. Cause the they're Tricksters. Great. The Tricksters. <laughs> I, I meant the others, the other books. But yes, The Tricksters, which I haven't read, so... Then I think we're done. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you, Ree, for joining us. It's been terrific to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, Liz. Thank you. And that's it. That's our podcast. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you've got comments, we'd love to hear them. We're on the web and on social media. Details at victorplasm.net. Until next time, bye.